Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, Henry Cowan returns to update us on the striper fishing on Lake Lanier and to tell us about his upcoming book on freshwater stripers. In the second half of the interview, we're joined by Dave Whitlock. Dave wrote the four to Henry's book and provided several of the illustrations. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And as we continue to create and distribute more diverse content, you may want to consider downloading our iOS or our Android app. We organize our content by category so you can go straight to the content that interests you the most. The apps are free and the links are in the show notes. Alternatively, just search the Articulate Fly where you get your mobile apps. Now, on to the interview. Well, Henry, welcome back to the Articulate Fly. Hello, Mr. Cash. Thanks for having me back again. Oh, it's always fun. And I think the last time we had you on, Henry, it was too hot to chase stripers. Um, but I'm sure that's changed. What is your striper bite look like right now in North Georgia? Well, you know, we're finally getting the change in seasons here. Um, the lake is turning over, which means that our water is quality is getting better near the surface and our striped, uh, our striped companions are starting to chase little itty bitty thread fin shed on the surface. So we're starting to see surface feeding going on and that is just going to continue to get better and better as the weeks and months go on while, you know, we have a, Marvin, you and I have talked about this. We have a fishery that you can fish stripers 12 months a year on Lanier, but if you want to fly fish for them, it's basically a October till May kind of a deal. And then the water just gets hot and they go a little bit deeper and we kind of lay off of them then so that we don't stress them out. But if, if you were to ask me what is positively the best time to striper fish on an impoundment in the Southeast, it is clearly from the middle of October until the middle of January are the best three months. So we are right at the front gate of, uh, of, of this whole fishery going off for the next 90 days. And so, uh, that's, that's good news. You go out on the water and in the next three weeks, we'll get birds back. We'll have gulls flying around and diving and fish exploding and, you know, boats running past one another to get on to the, to the top water feed. And it's, uh, it's just a lot of fun. Very neat. So it kind of sounds like kind of your typical kind of run and gun uh, saltwater experience. It's exactly it. It's it's a saltwater experience, except the uh, the boat doesn't rock. That's the big difference, you know. And and believe it or not, I have a lot of anglers. Uh, while I get plenty of young guys as well, it's funny that a lot of my 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 clients are probably men and women over the age of 60 for no other reason that they were dyed in the hood saltwater fly rod fanatics. And they just don't feel as comfortable standing in a rocking boat, um, as well. They don't have that steadiness of foot. And so they've, they've kind of, you know, transferred onto the reservoir scene and they get that saltwater feel, even though, um, you know, we're 250 miles from the coast. Got it. And so, you know, you've got this great uh, topwater bite, you know, for the next three months or so. How does that progress as things get, I don't know that it ever gets cold in Georgia, but it gets cooler in Georgia uh, in the wintertime and then moving on into the spring? 
Oh, it gets a kicking cold here. Let me, let me tell you, I used to have one my 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 boat that I'd take trips out of years and years ago. Marvin was a a, a, a flats boat. It was basically an action craft flats boat, and I had to get rid of that boat because December, January, February, and March. If I took a morning trip and we had to run 18 or 20 miles in somewhere between 30 and 38 degrees, it would take my clients about 20 to 30 minutes to defrost and thaw out before we could start fishing. So I had to get a a big center console because it just made way more sense. It gets cold down here. Um, But, you know, so it's uh, as we move into the fall now, we have fish feeding on the top and then that'll eventually progress and the fish will move further north on our lake um, as the water temps drop and the fish will continue to go on top and we'll get birds added to the mix. Right now, we have no birds. So right now, you're just driving around with your binoculars looking for splashes on the surface. But in about three weeks, we'll get our gulls. We'll get a lot of the, uh, the herring gulls and the, uh, the ringneck gulls and, uh, and, or the ringbill gulls, and we'll have them on the lake. And then we'll have our bonapartes, which are the, the favorite. Those are the little gulls that we look for. And those are, those are son of a gun, the best fish finders on the entire lake with regards to finding stripers feeding. And we'll get those. And then that'll transition into December and January. The fish will go up North and the gulls will follow them up North. But the difference is they won't feed on top quite as often. They may feed on top over maybe a 45 minute period in the morning and maybe a 45 minute period late in the day. And that's it. But then we'll have big schools um, huddled together in probably 15 to 25 feet um, over like a 30 foot bottom. And we can find those fish with the fish finders. And that's when you can really start putting numbers in the boat. When they, we start using the fast sinking lines to get the, those fish that are down 15 to 25, Marvin, are just easy pickings. Um, so my best, like if I'm going to have double digit days, it's going to be probably sometime mid-December through mid-end January. That's when we have our, our biggest, we run up our biggest numbers on the lake on the fly but this time of year is favored just because you see more fish on top and guys just love seeing schools of 25 to a hundred fish busting the surface. It looks like, uh, you know, it looks like somebody put a blender on top. It looks like, I, I wouldn't call it Montauk, but it looks like a mini Montauk. That's what it looks like. And so it's really, it's really good stuff. Yeah, really neat. And, and what pushes the forage north? Is it the, is the water warmer coming into the lake or what is it that makes them migrate to the north? Yeah, so the baits, everything on reservoir stripers is dependent on water temperature. And because the water temperature determines where the, where the forage is going to be. And the forage runs as, as the water temperature starts to drop the forage starts to run further north up on the north end of the lake. And then during the dead of winter, the north end of the lake on Lanier and most of our southern impoundments, the north end of the lake, especially if there's a tailwater or a dam attached to the south end of the lake, because most of our impoundments have rivers running through them. Um, So what happens is as, as that water temperature and, you know, drops out of the sixties and into the fifties, and then eventually uh, it'll get into the forties and the shad become very uncomfortable. 
But what happens up north is the water on the north ends of the lake are shallower than the water on the south end of the lake where the dam is and where the deeper water is. So that shallower water, while the water temperatures dropped, on the afternoon sun, when the afternoon sun hits the backs of the coves on these red clay banks, that water temperature can warm one to one and a half degrees. And that's just enough to make the threadfin shad a little happier. Um, when the water temp is 47 or 48, they'd rather it be 49 or 50. So most of our bait at that time of the year runs north. And so the stripers are hot on their tails. Got it. And as things kind of warm up in the spring, does that just bring the, the forage up to the top to basically the warmer water on the edges? And is that where you find the stripers again? So we'll see some top water in the spring. We do. But what the big event that happens in the spring is that forgetting the bait for a moment, forgetting the forage, when that water temperature hits about 57 degrees, that is the magic number for the stripers to think about going and making their spawning run up the river. So while they're on the north end of the lake, they are now going to go further north. And while they don't all go at the same time, you know, they will go in stages, different, you know, groups will go up and run and, you know, drop their eggs and do their thing. And, and when they're, when they're getting ready for what we call the pre-spawn in spring, those fish put on a feed bag. I mean, they are absolutely ferocious. Um, the biggest fish on almost all impoundments are caught during, during the, the, the pre-spawn uh, run up the river for, for stripers. So whether you're in Tennessee or Kentucky or Virginia or Alabama or wherever your striper fish in Georgia or South Carolina, your biggest fish are generally going to be caught in that March, April timeframe when the fish are making their spawning run. Um, and they're just putting on a feed bag. They become, that's when you get the big gals and then that the fish will run up and they'll, they'll do drop their eggs and do what they have to do. And some impoundments, the, the spawn is successful. And in some impoundments like mine on Lanier, the spawn is not successful just because the eggs don't have enough time to free flow and, um, and, and become fry and tumble in, in, in the river. So they just drop back down to the end of the, you know, to the top end of the lake, get silted over. And, uh, that's when we depend on our department of natural resources to, to restock our lakes. But there are many lakes around the country that actually have, uh, a very, very good success of spawning stripers. Uh, Lanier is just not one of those lakes. And then right after that, uh, the fish, when they come down from the spawn and they've spawned out, they are just hungry and they are just eating like, like banshee. They will just eat really, really well. So March, April is also really good. But if I had to, um, we can get some pretty exciting top water on the pre-spawn Trying to time that is very, very difficult, but it's going to happen somewhere between the 15th of March and the 30th of March and end around the 15th of April, 20th of April, somewhere in that time frame on Lanier. Um, and the funny thing, Marvin, is so O'Neill Williams, who's a, uh, an outdoor radio and TV show host, uh, not much of a fly angler, but I've had him fly fishing out. Um, once said to me, one of the most, uh, important pieces of advice, he said, stripers don't know where they live, Henry. And I, you know, after speaking to anglers across the country who striper fish in fresh waters, it's, that is one of the great statements that I've 
that I've actually, you know, agree with. And I think is, uh, worth noting because what a striper will do in Virginia, say on, on uh, Smith mountain Lake where Blaine is fishing versus a striper, say in Oklahoma fishing, um, you know, one of the lakes there or Arkansas fishing the Norfolk, you know, Lake in the Norfolk Lake, those fish all do the same thing. They can all be patterned the same. It's just, it may be that, that the water heats up a little earlier in South, you know, in Georgia than it does in, in the Virginia mountains. But that water also cools down quicker in Virginia or in Arkansas than it does in Georgia. So, you know, sometimes in the spring, you know, we're following their pattern. And in the fall, in the fall, I should say, we're following their pattern. And in the spring, they're following our patterns because we're heating up quicker. So they all do the same thing. It's just a matter of what the temperature is. That's what sets off that next pattern. Got it. And that's a really good segue. And, you know, the last time we had you on, we were still trying to figure out when exactly your book was going to come out. But now we know that uh, that fly fishing for freshwater striped bass is going to be released on the 17th of November. And I wanted to ask you, Henry, just to tell us a little bit about where the idea for writing the book came from. Well, you know, it's funny. So um, I've had that idea in my mind for many, many years. And my, uh, one of my very dear friends, Kevin Arculio used to always pester me and say, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. There's nothing on the subject. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I know, but you know, I don't know. We'll see. And then, uh, what ended up happening was about three years ago, uh, I got a phone call from lefty and lefty Cray called me up and he, you know, when we chat lefty and I were chatting just about every two, three weeks, we'd get on the phone for anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes and just, just talk about whatever. And I got a phone call out of the blue and he's like, Henry, we need to have a book in the industry on freshwater striped bass. There's, I am getting emails and I'm getting letters written to me and people asking questions and the industry needs a book because there's absolutely nothing on how to fly fish for these great game fish. And he goes, you need to write the book. And I was very, obviously I was very flattered that lefty would ask me to do it. And, uh, he said, I'll set you up with, um, with, uh, Jay Cassell from Skyhorse publishing. And, um, what I, what I think the industry needs is, a it needs to be a how to, uh, because people just don't know where to begin and what to do when it comes to rivers and, and, and impoundments and lakes. So that, that's kind of how the whole thing started, quite frankly. Very neat. And so it sounds like it's kind of geared towards kind of the, maybe a more experienced angler, but a more novice striper fisherman. Yeah. You know, um, what's really interesting is while the book probably has a total of, I'm thinking 10 chapters in it. I'm just trying to remember. It's probably got about 10 chapters in it. There's one, maybe one and a half chapters that's dedicated to the fly. And what you need to do as far as, you know, tackle, uh, equipment, uh, uh, flies and all that kind of stuff. The rest of the book, quite frankly, is, is more about how to pattern and find the fish. So even though we entitled it fly fishing for freshwater stripers, the truth is Marvin, we could have, we could have entitled it fly and light tackle fishing for freshwater stripers because 
the the meat the 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 you know the core of the book is tells you what you need to do if you're getting on a lake and you or or in a river and you just don't know where to start what do i look for you know it all looks you go on a lake and it's very you know it's very daunting when you when you go onto a big impoundment and it all looks the same and you're like you know everybody's a hero when the fish are on top but the fish are usually not on top so the question is how do i find them and there's so many patterns that evolve through a season and so we've kind of just gone from a to z and the best way i can equate it you know to to you marvin is when you look at these guys that bass fish professionally or guys in clubs that bass fish lakes how do these guys how does a guy from texas go to a lake in in florida and and place so high in you know in the tournament when he's never really fished that lake before and and the key is he's figured out the pattern he looks at the water temperature and 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 found out you know when the water temperature is x the bass and and their their forage should be over here whether whether here means they're in blowdowns or they're in pockets or on the creek channels or they're in the backs of the coves or they're heading up the river or you know any of those places that's that's kind of what they're that's kind of what what that does um so that that's that's how they're so successful and it's no different for striper fishing you've got to know what you know you've got to know where the fish are got it and so you know i always ask all of my authors henry to tell me a little bit about the writing and the edit editing experience and what was that like oh well you heard the deep sigh yeah Um, i get that a lot by the way you know, I'm going to tell you, I don't know how Lefty Cray wrote 33 books, Marvin. I, I, I don't know how he did it because, you know, I've been writing articles for magazines and I've been on many a masthead of many a magazine over the last 20 years. And, you know, writing an article, which is generally 2000 words about whatever the topic is, that's one thing. But, you know, the idea of having to write 65,000 words to 70,000 words. I mean, now you're talking about writing 30 to 35 articles and that's the way I broke it down in my head. And, um, it's in the beginning, it's hard to get motivated because you don't know where to begin, but, um, you know, you start with your outline and, and talk about it and, and then just each out your outline is detailed by chapter. And in the chapter you have sub headings. And then each one of those becomes an article. And somehow, you know, in a few short months, you, you seem to get through it. You just, you just, you know, you just cram it in and you get it done and, and, um, and you do it. And I will tell you, I don't think I'll ever write another book again. I will, I will just tell you when, when you're staring at 65, 70,000 words in front of you, it's, it's just mind blowing to think how, you know, I, I wrote, you know, 20% of the book. And I'm like really proud of what I got in there. And I'm like, geez, Louise, I I still got another like 50,000 words to go. What is this ever going to come to an end? And so it's, (laughs) uh, you know, it's, you know, it's not easy. I'll tell you the, for me though, the truth is the writing, while it was a big daunting task because it's just so much, and you don't want to be repetitive and you don't want to, you know, you, you certainly never want to repeat yourself much because I feel like then you're cheating the reader, you know, uh, just because you're trying to, 
to make something longer than it needs to be. So you want to be as concise as possible. To me, the hardest part was actually not the writing. The hardest part was pictures, you know, getting good pictures in a book. You know, that's the difference to me of a coffee table book that you're proud of that you want to keep out for to look out again and again and again versus just a book with, you know, hero shots. I was fortunate that um, I had Josh England, who is a very close friend of mine. And Josh happens to be an outdoor photographer and has written, has uh, had a number of photo essays in just about every fly fishing magazine out there. You name it, he has had photo essays in it. He happens to live in Georgia. He happens to be, was a client of mine at a very early age before he was carrying around a camera um, and doing this professionally. And I caught him his first striper on a fly. And over the years, he became addicted to the sport and, you know, is now a photographer, you know, doing basically anything fly fishing lifestyle, so to speak, salt water, warm water, cold water. But he has an affinity for stripers. So he opened up his entire photo log for me to have any picture I want. Um, and he's so creative with the photos that I would say 75% of the photos are, are Josh England's photos. And so um, I was very fortunate to have him. And then I also had David Cannon, uh, who's another very popular and famous outdoor photographer. He does a lot of shoots for Cabela's um, and the likes. And he opened up his library to me for stripers too. And again, David is someone I met who used to work for, um, uh, he used to work for uh, Gray's and American Angler and those guys at Morris uh, communications. And so he, I caught, uh, I got him his first striper on a fly again, long before he carried a camera around with him. So I was fortunate to have these guys as friends and that that's really what got us over the hump. Yeah. Very neat. And, you know, obviously it wasn't a painless process. So I also like to ask my writers and authors to share what they learned about themselves going through the process. Well, you know, what did I learn about myself? I learned that I'm never going to write another book, but I am very glad that I wrote this one. Um, I hope people will like it because, you know, stripers and freshwater are passionate to me. Um, and I, I learned more about the species, you know, in writing this book, I just learned a lot more about the species having had, you know, spoken with folks around the country who chase stripers and have the same burning desire that I have and uh, have been doing it for as many years. And in some cases, more guys like Dan Blanton and Dave Whitlock and Bill Butts. These guys were chasing stripers in fresh water while I was chasing them back in salt water as a youngster. They, these guys were doing it in fresh water. So they've got 10, 15, 20 years on, on me on doing this. And I was, you know, what I learned more than anything was going back to O'Neill stripers, you know, don't know where they live. And, and so, um, you know, that's what I learned about it more than anything. So. Yeah, very neat. And, you know, so the release date is November 17th and, um, you know, I, I, I know it's available for pre-order on Amazon cause I've got it, I think in the show notes to our original interview, but where else can folks find the book and pre-order it so they can make sure they get it as soon as possible? 
Yeah, so Amazon will have it. Books a Million will have it. Target has it. Um, Barnes & Noble has it. Uh, Flyman Fishing Company, our friends over at Flyman, Martin and Flyman, they'll have it as well. Um, I believe Renzetti um, is going to be carrying the books for any shops that want to get it. Uh, they'll distribute it as well for some, because, you know, Renzetti does, on top of the great vices that they do, they also um, are the supplier of uh, Just Add H2O um, um, materials. So they supply a lot of stuff, that are a lot and a lot of great materials that come out of South Africa to the shops. And so I believe they're going to have the book as well. So there, there's plenty of places where where you can get it for sure. And hopefully, hopefully some of the fly shops will will feel it's uh, you know that it's it's worthy, um, and and they'll carry it as well. I hope. Yeah, well, I would imagine people will be able to find it at the Fishhawk, right? Fishhawk will have it. Unicoi Outfitters will have it. Uh, Alpharetta Outfitters will have it. I hear Orvis Atlanta is supposed to be carrying it. Um, and I'm hoping Cahutta Fishing, so all my local shops in Georgia should probably carry the book. If they don't, you know, I'll be outing them, you know, <laughs> so, so none, none of the owners will ever get a busman's day with me on the boat again. If that book's not in their store, you well, know, you heard it first here, folks. So, uh, you know, obviously everything's still kind of up in the air, uh, with COVID, but do you have any kind of upcoming appearances or events that you're going to be promoting the event at in Georgia? Uh, you know, I really, this is it. This is my, this is my appearance. This is going to be, unfortunately, no, I, I don't, you know, I'm, uh, I, and I don't know if we talked about this the last time we're on, I'm immune compromised. So I have to be really careful. You know, I'm on a, uh, I'm on a, uh, a drug that, that suppresses my immune system. And so because of that, I have to be super careful. So I am not going to be doing any of the shows this year. Not that I think there's going to be any shows to begin with. I, I highly doubt it. And that's where we do most of our promoting. And, and so that's unfortunately a bummer because, you know, when it comes to like the fly fishing show and Ben Farimsky's shows, I was planning on doing more shows with him this year. And, and you know, I just can't tell you how much I love doing that show every year. And I think, uh, if there's anything that's going to, that's going to make me a little depressed this year, it's going to be not, not going to his shows. And I think a lot of, a lot of us are going to feel that way. So, um, you know, the only thing I'm doing right now is I'm doing some virtual stuff, you know, on, on, uh, on zoom, I'm doing some club meetings and things like that, um, from some of the clubs and, and whatnot around the country. But other than that, not, not a whole lot of promotion to be done. So this book's going to have to sell on the merits of, you know, is striper fishing in fresh waters becoming more popular? Was lefty right or is lefty wrong? You know, that, that's what we're going to find out. There you go. And so if, if I remember correctly, I think we've, we've talked recently in that you're, you, you know, even though you won't be doing shows, you're doing a little bit of limited guiding. Do I remember that correctly? I am. I, you know, I made a decision about, about a couple months ago you know, normally most of my clients, I put two guys in the boat and I'm, you know, I'm out of a 22 foot, uh, bay boat. And so what I've decided is, um, just to ensure my, my health, I'm only taking single anglers this season. So I've cut my guide numbers back a lot because most of my trips are two guys that want to split the cost of a trip, which I totally get. But with a single angler, I can have one guy sitting behind me for the trip. And then when he gets up to where we're going to fish, he gets in the bow of the boat and I'm 16, 18 feet behind him working the trolling motor. And I feel very safe doing that. 
So uh, I am going to be, I am guiding. Um, matter of fact, I actually, uh, I just canceled a trip for this coming week because we're supposed to be getting you ready for this. Marvin, we're getting gusts of 40 miles an hour. Um, that's, that's what's coming that, that, that there's a hurricane coming up the, the Gulf coast. I don't remember the name Zima. Or some it's, it, I think crazy. it's Zeta. I think we've already gone through the alphabet twice this year. Yeah. So that, that hurricane is coming and on Thursday, we're going to be having 40 mile an hour winds. So I've already canceled my trip Thursday. I will likely be canceling my trip Friday because that'll be the post front and the fish generally, you know, it's funny. We always talk about, we never know when the fish are going to feed, but we almost always know when the fish aren't going to feed. And if you're on the backside of a front, you can almost be assured the fish are going to be swimming with their fins over their mouths. So uh, just not not eating. So the likelihood is we're going to, we'll rebook on Thursday and Friday, but we are guiding and I'm happy to be guiding because that's one of the things I truly look forward to. You know, that, that, that's a happy moment during, during a tough year with the pandemic. So yeah, absolutely. That's what's so, going on. Yeah. So why don't you let folks know where they can, uh, they can find you, uh, so they can book you and maybe fish with you. Well, if they want to, if they want to book us, they can either go to my uh, website, which is Henry Cowan, C O W E N flyfishing.com, or they can get a hold of us at, um, six, seven, eight, five, one, three, 1934. And they can call us to, to book a trip and, What's great is this year, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, I am usually eight weeks out on all my bookings and I, I can book tr- people next week if need be. So uh, we've got a lot of openings. And so uh, that's what's just got to be until this thing passes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, folks, you owe it to yourself to uh, one, pre-order the book and two, uh, book a day with Henry. Um, and uh, I'm going to go ahead, Henry, and I'm going to grab Dave right now. Okay. Well, Dave, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thank you, Mother. Good to be here. Oh, I'm excited to have you. I'm really, really honored. And, you know, we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Well, that's probably about five years old or six years old with a cane pole. Uh, like a lot of young kids get started with uh, catching a few sunfish uh, in the ponds of Oklahoma. Very neat. And when did you get lured to the dark side of fly fishing, Dave? Well, you know, I was born and raised here in Oklahoma, which is basically the, in those days, the Sahara Desert of fly fishing. There, there were no fly fishermen here. And I discovered fly fishing when I was about eight years old uh, in the pages of the L.L. Bean catalog. Uh, I saw this beautiful rod Laying, laying on the, you know, in the kind of the center fold of the, of the catalog and, uh, reel and, and there were some hooks there and they had feathers tied on them rather than a worm or a crawfish. And, uh, I asked my granddad, I said, Grandpa, what is this? He said, Dave, that's fly fishing, not for us, only for rich people. And so, and that was when I was eight years old. And when I, and in 1980, I became the head of the LL Bean fly fishing program and wrote them three books on fly fishing. And that was about, that was about, that was about as unlikely as, as someone being the best swimmer in the world from the Sahara Desert. Very neat. Who are some of the folks that mentored you on your fly fishing journey before you became a mentor to so many of us? 
Well, uh, Joe Brooks was probably the, my biggest mentor. You know, I just idolized that man and and uh, his writings of outdoor life and uh, about especially about Montana and about South America. Uh, he was quite a role model. Another one was Lee Wolf, and uh, I, I really uh, uh, learned about catch and release and about the conservation, you know, of our fish and stuff from him. He was quite a mentor. And Al McLean and Ted Trueblood, they were they were great uh, uh, mentors of mine too, and so was Dan Bailey. Very neat. And kind of when I think of you, I think of you as one of the pioneers for chasing non-trout species on the fly. And what attracted you to fishing for stripers on the fly? Well, uh, I caught a couple of stripers in Oklahoma when I was when, before I moved to Arkansas and uh, blow a Keystone Dam. And uh, I wasn't really impressed with how, how I had to catch them and where, where I caught them. And uh, the uh, so I, I, that didn't, you know, that didn't really stick. But when I started working for L.L. Bean up in Maine, I started fishing the coastal rivers for stripers, and I just fell in love with them. Golly, they were gorgeous, wonderful fish. You know, they were big and beautiful, and uh, and to this Oklahoma, really exotic. And when I came back home after about the third year of uh, of, of my tenure up at Beans, I spent four months up there each year working with their schools. I discovered five miles from my house was a lake called was a lake uh, North Fork. And it was full of big strappers. And so uh, I, uh, after a couple of three years of chasing them, I began to catch them pretty regularly. And they averaged 18 pounds. And it was, uh, it was all any, any fly fishing could ever want. Hey, very neat. Is there a particular day on the water chasing stripers that stands out in your memory? Probably the first big one I ever caught. And I caught it by myself in the middle of the winter off of a, of a little small bass boat. I would, been trying to catch them, and I'd, they'd rise, and I'd catch them and couldn't get them. Couldn't. And finally, uh, one day, uh, I was out in the, about 11 o'clock in the morning, right in the middle of the winter, freezing weather. And I was just, just, as, just as I went to make it, to pick up my streamer, this huge fish just appeared and, and, and swallowed it and took off. And uh, it just, it, you know, man, it was taken back, and you know, like I couldn't believe it. And pretty soon it stopped. And I, and, uh, uh, while I stopped, they had run 200 yards of backing off my Steamaster fly reel. And I, and I saw it roll 200 yards away and it came to the end of the backing. Well, I finally got it back to the boat after, for 15 or 20 minutes at given date. Then it was so big, I, I was afraid to pick it up. I thought it might pull me in. So I, I motored to the bank and got out of the bank and beached it. But the, and, and that was, uh, I'll never forget that. That was so exciting. Very neat. And, you know, over your career, you've touched so many anglers. Um, tell me a little bit about when you first met Henry. Well, I'd rather not tell about that. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I knew Henry before he knew me. And I, I really admired that young man. He was uh, he was everything a gentleman and a good fly fisherman should be. And, I, I attended several of his programs uh, when he was giving them at the different shows. And finally, uh, I got nervous enough up to come up and introduce myself to him. And we've been uh, uh, pretty much soul brothers ever since. 
Yeah, Henry, what do you remember? Um, I I remember when I shook Dave's hand the first time. I was missing my wedding ring after because I always wore it on my right hand. It was gone. David taken my. No, I'm kidding. Um, oh God, you're so bad. No, no, no. Dave, listen, you know, you know what it's like. I mean, think about what it would be like when one of your heroes comes up and says, I'd like to talk to you about stripers. I'm like, you know, I'm sitting, you know, it, 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 I guess it would be, um, it, it would be like, uh, if I was a New York Yankee and, and, and so to speak, Babe Ruth came up to me and said, let's talk about hitting. And I'd be, you yeah. want to talk about hitting with me? You know, that, that's the way I kind of felt. So I was, uh, I was delighted. And then, uh, um, you know, I was very fortunate, uh, to have met Dave at the shows and, uh, we just became very, very close friends over the years, both him and Emily, his wife, and they just become, uh, two very important people in my life. And who would ever thunk that a striped bass could bring people so close to one another. It's unbelievable. I agree. I agree. And, and, you know, it's great because, you know, we finally know when Henry's book is going to come out and we've got about uh, three weeks, give or take, to wait. And, you know, Dave, I know you wrote the forward. Tell us a little bit about how that came to be. Well, I was honored to get to write the forward because I think he's such a special man. And there's been a lot of books uh, and articles written about about drivers. But I think that why I, why I got excited about Henry's book is not because of just the strappers, but because such a unique, wonderful guy was going to write about them. And I think, you know, what makes a really good book is the quality of the author that writes it, not necessarily the subject of the book. And when I got a chance to uh, to say some sweet, nice things about him in the forward uh, that were absolutely truthful, and uh, uh, I, I was just overjoyed. Marvin, I have to tell you, as fortunate as as fortunate as he felt to write the forward, I was you know over the moon when he told me he was gonna you know he would be happy to write it, and then he offered to do illustrations for the book that just you know was you know basically putting on the sprinkles over what was already a, a good looking ice cream sundae that just just added it over the top to have Dave Whitlock's illustrations in there. It was Ben Dunham. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the, because I understand from Henry that um, you contributed about five or six illustrations. Tell us a little bit about them. Well, the the two main ones, that uh, the two color paintings that I did for one was uh, of, uh, of the five uh, uh, the five forms of the temperate bass, which the striped bass is the major, major one, and uh, it shows all five of them in color and in size and proportion to what you normally catch them. And so that, I think that gives a, gives Henry's book a good proportion of what the temper bats and scoppers look like and, and, uh, and the family they came from. Uh, because a lot of people don't realize that, uh, that, uh, there are five different, uh, uh, fish in that temper bass family. And they're all real special, but the scoppers are the, are the, the king, are the king kongs of it. And, and so, uh, Dave, are those prints available uh, on your website if someone saw one of them in the book? They are, yes, they are. The, the, other, the other illustration that uh, uh, I like is I tried to capture the, because uh, Henry and I are both freshwater 
uh, scrapper fishermen now on lakes, and getting out early in the morning uh, and getting into a really blitz of, uh, of shad and scrappers uh, about sunup is a, I think that's the classic experience in scrapper fishing uh, in fresh water with a fly rod. And so the illustration I did uh, depicted uh, a couple of folks, uh, you know, in a boat casting to a, a school of rising scrappers in the foreground. They're chasing shad and the gulls are diving right into the middle of them. So I got all the action of, uh, of both the anglers and the sun up, sun coming up and the scrappers and the shad and the, and the gulls, uh, all in one picture. Very, very neat. And I will, um, I'll put a link to your website in the show notes and I'll okay. see, yeah. And I'll see if I can find those images and link to them directly too. And that'll make it easier for folks. And, you know, Henry and I were talking about this a little bit earlier as we kind of move deeper into fall, we start to think about show season and, you know, obviously things are a little bit different this year. Um, are you planning to oh, be, yeah, gosh. yeah. <laughs> are you planning to be on the road in 2021 or are you going to kind of take well, a break? You know, uh, I was, you know, you, you told me that you might ask me that at this point, no, until, you know, cause I'm, I'm 86 and I just don't have any business coming in contact with a, with a virus if I don't absolutely have to. And so we're going to hold off on, on doing any big public appearances until uh, we get a vaccine. You know, it, it just doesn't make any sense for me and my family and what have you to, uh, to catch that thing. So, so we'll have to, we'll do what we can do here with, uh, with our schools we have here in, uh, in my art and writing and, you know, the things that I do here in my studio until that clears up. Yeah, absolutely. So I assume, Dave, if people come to your website, they'll be able to see if you've got clinics or maybe you're doing something a little bit closer to home. Yeah. And we can control the environment here at our place because we live on a ranch and it's very isolated from, from the outside. In fact, I have really not been in town since March. Uh, I've been, I've stayed, you know, here basically on the ranch in the county. Uh, I've, I've gone to the health club or, or gone to the grocery store or anything. It's kind of surrealistic, you know, not doing those things that you do every day like that. But, but, uh, I've got plenty of good things to do here. And I'm something of an introvert, uh, with, with the work I do with, with the R's and the, fly tying and the riding, you know, I, I can get pretty much in that world and not really, uh, feel a need to get out and uh, be around a lot of people and, and, uh, and be doing a lot of things in, in cities. No, it makes a lot of sense. And Dave, what's the best place for people to kind of keep up with you and follow your art adventures and your angling adventures? Well, our website is undoubtedly probably the best. And then Emily has a really good Facebook that she stays relatively active on. And I'm getting ready to do a series, uh, for our website. Uh, it's called, uh, uh, what I found out and what you need to know. And it's just a series of little essays about all the little good things that, uh, it would help you enjoy fly fishing better. Very, very neat. Henry, you got any last-minute questions for Dave before we all go? Uh, Dave, when are you coming with Emily to come fish with me in Atlanta? Are we going to have to wait for a vaccine, I guess? Yeah, that's the best thing. I'm going to try to go down to uh, Rob Rogers' uh, Deep South Fly Fishers uh, as soon as we get a vaccine to uh, 
to do some red eye fishing with him. And then uh, probably on that same trip, we drop down and fish with you if you're not too busy. Oh, I'm, I won't be too busy for you guys. And maybe not at all. You know, and also I may have a a, a, a new scrapper book, and I may have you autograph it for me. Hi. Marvin, this is where we should cut it off right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Henry, I love you. It's been good talking to you. And you too, Marvin. Absolutely. Dave, you're the greatest. You are the best. I, I really appreciate all, all your, your help and your, your, your sage advice through the writing of the book, Dave. It's uh, meant the world to me. Really meant the good. world to me. Good. Well, it it, uh, it comes directly in my heart to you, bud. Well, I know we I know we'll sell at least ten copies, so we'll see what yeah. happens after that. Anything over ten, it's a home run. Uh, well, I, I guarantee you, you will you will win the World Series with that book. Well, well, gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me. I'm really, really honored to be able to participate in this conversation with you. Well, you're more than welcome. It's been nice uh, doing it for you, and I'm glad that you asked me. It's an honor. Take care, gentlemen. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend, and please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. Tight lines, everybody.